Welcome to launch day of D-Day in 90 Minutes, our riveting 15-part weekly podcast series that delves deep into the historic Allied invasion from almost every perspective imaginable. Join us as we unravel the logistics, untold stories, strategic maneuvers, and heroic acts that shaped one of the most pivotal events in World War II. In our inaugural episode, Opening Salvo, we dive headfirst into the dramatic months leading up to the invasion, examining the painstaking planning, the logistics, the nerve-wracking anticipation, and the audacious risks taken by the Allied forces. And we recount the harrowing moments that marked the beginning of a mission that would change the course of history. I'm Robert Child, and episode one of D-Day in 90 Minutes will begin in a moment. I'm Robert Child, and I'd love for you to join me on my brand new podcast, Stories of Faith and Courage. In gripping narratives, we'll walk alongside ancient heroes who face down giants, conquering adversity, and hear tales of modern-day warriors whose unwavering faith sustained them through the darkest of times. Plus, we'll explore enigmatic ancient mysteries like the connection of the Shroud of Turin to the Knights Templar that will leave you on the edge of your seat. I hope you'll join me on Stories of Faith and Courage. It's available now on your favorite podcast platform. It's hard to describe what we all went through that day, but those that were there will understand. My sergeant said, are you scared, son? And I said, yes, I am. And he said, that's good. It's good to be scared. We all are. This guy in the boat, he turned to me, and he threw up all over me and I got seasick. It was scary. You're not thinking about anything. You're thinking, I hope that shell that just went off isn't going to hit this boat. Even the guys that had seen a lot of action, and this was my first time, they were just as ashen as I was. I was frightened to death. I was the second man off my barge. The first and third men got killed. The first guy, the ramp went down, he fell, and I tried to jump over him, and I stumbled, and we both went into the water. We were supposed to be able to walk into shore, but they didn't bring us close enough, and I was in six feet of water with a 60-pound pack on. So I let it all go. I was under the water, and you could see the bullets go twish, twish, twish down past you. But that, I was afraid, but I came up. I knew a bullet was coming my way and I didn't have a helmet, a rifle, nothing. I hit the beach, the guys pulled me in, the guys that already were there. I lost everything, but they said, you'll find plenty of them on the beach, rifles and helmets that belong to nobody. Nobody knew where we were supposed to go. There was nobody in charge, and you were on your own. All around me, people were being shot at, bodies all over the place. You didn't know if they were alive or dead. They were just lying there. We got behind this tank to protect ourselves. We were holding our own when they called us over to them. I asked the sergeant, do you want me to go first? He said, you go first, I'll be right behind you. I heard an explosion and turned around and his torso was over here and his body was over there. I saw wounded guys dying, crawling up in front of us to act as barricades so they could protect us from being hit with their own bodies. I saw them. They would just lay there, you know, take the shot. Once we got up the bluff, you could see for miles. There was this eerie sight of bodies, which looked like driftwood floating in the water. 
the beach was covered with the bodies of American soldiers. All of these things are flashbacks. I can't count how many of my buddies are in that cemetery in Normandy, but the heroes are still there, the real heroes. Charles Durning, Academy Award-winning actor, U.S. Army, Silver Star, Bronze Star, Purple Heart, 2008 National Day Memorial Day Concert. D-Day in 90 Minutes Written by William Bradle, Robert Child Narrated by Travis D-Day is the most crucial battle of World War II for size, complexity, and importance. It was the largest amphibious invasion in history. Ten Allied nations had troops in the fight. 160,000 troops landed in Normandy on June 6, 1944. 73,000 Americans, 62,000 British, and 21,000 Canadians. 24,000 American, British, and Canadian paratroopers dropped behind the lines the night before the invasion. American soldiers smoked 20 million cigarettes a day. Eisenhower smoked 80 a day. 104 American gliders landed behind enemy lines. The Allies had 11,590 aircraft in the sky during D-Day. The Germans had six. 180,000 German troops were in France, with a great majority in Pas-de-Calais. The Germans thought the Allies would attack Pas-de-Calais, 21 miles from England. But the Allies attacked at Normandy, 90 miles away. Ships totaled 6,939, ranging in size from the dead-knot battleship USS Texas, 573 feet long, to the Higgins boat at 36 feet long. 500 U.S. soldiers died at Omaha Beach. Total Allied fatalities on June 6th were 2,500. 37,000 Allied soldiers would die in the two-month Normandy campaign to follow. Sea rations came in round cans. The soldiers preferred flat rectangular cans, but there was not enough machinery in the U.S. to produce flat cans. German e-boats killed 700 American troops in April 1944, practicing a landing at Slapton Sands. Hitler noticed the similarity between Normandy beaches and Slapton Sands, and he ordered more troops to Normandy. Hitler thought he could stop the Allies at the beach. Stalin wasn't sure the Allies would ever invade. The impact of the Normandy invasion on the war boils down to geography. When Allied planning began in 1943, German and Japanese progress had stalled. The German advance in Russia ground to a halt outside Moscow. German forces surrendered at Stalingrad, and their tank tactics failed at Kursk. The Marines stopped the Japanese advance and started island hopping in the Pacific on their way to the islands of Japan. Churchill called the time. This is not the end. It is not even the beginning of the end, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. As with Japan in the Pacific, there were thousands of miles between Germany's enemies and the homeland. Allied forces were in Italy, but Rome is a thousand miles from Berlin. The Russians were advancing, but still 1,200 miles from Berlin. More importantly, they were 1,600 miles from the industrial heart of Germany the Rhine-Ruhr district. 
Without the industrial capacity of the Rhine-Ruhr, the German army and air force would not have the weapons to fight. The war would be over. The southeastern tip of England is less than 300 miles from the Rhine-Ruhr district. The shortest path to victory lay through France, and Hitler knew it. In a November 1943 Führer directive, he wrote, But now a greater danger appears in the west, an Anglo-Saxon landing. In the east, the vast extent of the territory makes it possible for us to lose ground, even on a large scale, without a fatal blow being dealt to the nervous system of Germany. It is very different in the West. Everything indicates that the enemy will launch an attack against the Western Front in the spring. I can therefore no longer take responsibility for further weakening the West, for it is here that the enemy must and will attack, that the decisive battle against the landing forces will be fought. The shift to the West was, in Hitler's mind, only temporary. He told his commanders the destruction of the enemy's landing attempt means more than a purely local decision on the Western Front. It is the sole decisive factor on the whole conduct of the war, and hence in its final result. Once defeated, the enemy will never again try to invade, and invasion failure would also deliver a crushing blow to British and American morale. With the defeat of the invasion, Hitler would turn his forces back on the Russians, saying, so the whole outcome of the war depends on each man fighting in the West. And that means the fate of the Reich as well. Hitler saw the battle coming. He had the enemy, the time, and the place correct, and still failed. He had the foresight, but not the means to stop the invasion, because he lacked resources. Hitler was facing and fighting the enemy on three land fronts, Russia, the Mediterranean, and now the threat to Western Europe. At the same time, there was fighting on the home front, as the British bombed military and civilian targets at night, and the Americans bombed during the day. Hitler had to prioritize. All of the fighting and defending required men and material. In late 1943, he picked the Western Front to receive the logistical support to try and stop the invasion he saw coming. But was the invasion important to the Allies? It certainly was not to the United States Army Air Corps. The senior officers of the Air Force were convinced that a round-the-clock bombing of Germany would bring the country to its knees. And they were probably right. The main reason for the invasion was to keep Russia in the war. Hitler knew the Allies were a marriage of convenience. He believed the capitalist societies of the United States and the United Kingdom were actually the natural enemies of the communist regime of the Soviet Union. The Cold War that ensued after World War II would prove him right. In addition, Germany and Russia had as recently as 1941 been allies themselves, signing the Molotov-Ribbentrop non-aggression pact in August of 1939 that carved up Poland. If Stalin grew tired of the incredible casualties he was incurring, or became convinced he could not trust the United States and Britain to wage war on Germany aggressively, a separate peace with Germany might be possible. Getting Russia out of the war would allow Hitler to take on the United States and the UK. Or, in his twisted mind, he perhaps could convince the Americans and British to ally with capitalist Germany against communist Russia. As early as 1928, Hitler wrote that Germany and England should be allies, and perhaps unite against even the United States. If England remains true to her great world political aims, her potential enemies will be France and Russia in Europe, 
and in the other parts of the world, especially the American Union in the future. The invasions of North Africa, Sicily, and Italy did nothing to prove the mettle of the British and Americans to Stalin, and he cared less about the sacrifices of the Marine Corps in the Pacific. Stalin could do the math as easily as anyone else, and only a stab of the Ruhr Valley would keep him in the war. That is why the British and Americans invaded Normandy. I hope you've enjoyed episode one of D-Day in 90 Minutes. Join us next time for episode two, Strategy and Sacrifice. In March of 1943, British Lieutenant General Frederick Morgan was assigned the task of planning the invasion. After the war, he was named head of the United Nations Displaced Persons efforts, but was fired for criticizing the program's incompetence and corruption. After that, he became a key figure in Britain's nuclear weapons program. But in 1943, his task was figuring out where along the Atlantic Wall the Allies would attack. That's next time. I'm Robert Child, and this has been D-Day in 90 Minutes Only on Point of the Spear. Music licensed from audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group.